This is Season 5, Episode 2, Regenerative Reciprocity with Holly Rose. Holly is an agroecology soil advocate who explores sacred ecology and transformative justice through storytelling. In this conversation, we cover a diverse range of terrain, and I'm sure you're going to love it as much as I loved recording it. And my neighbor's dog always just starts barking as soon as I press record. So there's a little background music to our conversation today. Um, but I'm wondering, so you're in England, wondering um, is a place to start whether there's something in the natural world, something outside that you've been drawn to just pay attention to recently and what meaning you're making from that interaction, that conversation with that thing? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I have this really, sort of speaking of dog species, I have this really special relationship with a bunch of foxes who live, you know, within the area. And we have this big backyard with a big forest and there's a tree that I go and give offerings to. Um, I'd like to say every day, but it doesn't happen every day. And then I usually sit there and either sort of meditate or just sit quietly by the tree or just have a bit of a chat with it. Um, and when I'm lucky, um, one of the foxes will sort of cross my path and, um, and have a little moment with me. So that's something that I've been feeling quite sort of enchanted about um, recently. And every once in a while I'll go up there and one of them will be sleeping under the tree where I normally sit or um, sort of sitting nearby um, the area. So that's been a really nice thing that I sort of look forward to and, and feel lucky when it happens. I love the word enchanted too because it is, it is like being given a glimpse into the mystery of uh, another world and that in fact when the veil becomes thin between those worlds and you can have those conversations, it's so beautiful. So bringing that fox medicine with us in the conversation this morning or this evening or time. Um, thank you. Yeah, so I'm, I'm curious, I guess, how you came to be writing about regeneration, how you came to be kind of in this sphere in this space I'm just curious really about your, your journey here and, and also your journey to England I guess uh, knowing that's not where you were born yeah no so I mean they both kind of have something to do with the other um and speaking of enchantment that was sort of what um brought me to regeneration and also what brought me back to England um I grew up, I was born on Treaty 1 territory in the country that we call Canada. And um, my mother's family is British and my father is British and has always lived here. So I made my way over when I was um, a teenager to get to know him better and my brothers. Um, but, uh, but around the time I started blogging about sustainability, I moved to France. And um, during the time that I began writing about sustainability, I wrote 365 blog posts in a year, um, you know, on how to live a greener lifestyle and um, what the problems and solutions were and what I thought was a circular story um, around each product that, you know, I used in my life and my lifestyle. Um, and when I came to the end of that year, I was feeling completely burnt out and also just really disenchanted. And I, I was super angry and um, 
uh, frustrated and, and lacked hope. Um, and a friend of mine introduced me to this book called Rewilding, and it was about this um, aristocratic family here in England who had, you know, regenerated the soil around their castle uh, and by doing so had increased the flora and fauna so greatly their landscape was completely transformed and they um, had like a 400% increase in turtle doves and monarch butterflies returned to Sussex. And I found this book, even though it was kind of quite scientific and not, not that enchanting, but I found it enchanting this idea that we could by, you know, stewarding the land uh, with traditional methods or traditional principles um, that we could that we could regenerate soil and regenerate the biosphere and regenerate our relationships with the land. And at around the same time, I read a book by Sharon Blackie called If Women Rose Rooted, and it had a lot to do with sort of Celtic mythology and um, environmentalism and uh, the, the people who identify as women's roles within the sort of nurturing of stories and nurturing of land. And then also this sort of spiritual animistic relationship with the land that I think was really missing at that point in my um, environmentalism. Um, and so I, through the rewilding side of things, I sort of went into Kiss the Ground and did their training to learn how to become a soil advocate for um, you know, regenerative agriculture <clears throat> or agroecology, which is a collection of indigenous knowledge that actually comes from um, Australian Aboriginal peoples, uh, for the most part, as well as uh, indigenous peoples of what is now, what was Turtle Island, what is now known as the United States and Canada, as well as South and Central America and all around the world, really, all these indigenous land practices that have somehow made their way, um, survived through col throughout colonization um, and despite the sort of disenchanted worldview that colonial peoples um, uphold, which sort of allows us to, um, you know, objectify and commodify all the people and beings and, and, um, uh, and living world elements that we do. Um, and so I, I started really sort of investing in this animistic side of my, um, my spirituality, as well as try, starting to understand the science behind soil, as well as the traditional knowledge behind soil. And that's kind of been my journey um, going forward. But I came back to the UK because I felt um, very called to try to practice um, my animistic spirituality without cultural appropriation. And so I wanted to learn from the remaining elders within the sort of Celtic and Norse um, mythology and we really don't have that much of a thread back to the way things were but I really felt like I had to be on the land in order to start to develop those relationships with um, with the flora and fauna who dwell here so I wanted to learn how to garden I wanted to learn how to forage I wanted to learn the names of the birds that sing in the morning and the you know types of foxes that cross my path um, and so that's really what's brought me to where I am today um, at this sort of crossroads between the regenerative movement and also the sacred ecology movement, which I think is going to be, um, you know, what either makes or breaks us um, yeah. as, as humans. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Um, I totally agree. I think it is, it is, you said it was the missing piece. And um, I think that, What's so interesting, having been through, you know, 2020 and everything that that bought is um, 
I was talking to my husband about it this morning, you know, that those practices to be able to hold grief together, to be able to look at these things, to be able to be in community, like I call it regenerative relationship, other people call it different things. I think that um, for me where, you know, I come at it more from a culture, a regenerative culture lens, but it's this, this conversation about relationship. Um, cultivating relationship with the land, as you said, with the plants, with the animals, with the beings, with the trees, with the self, um, with other with other human beings. I feel like that, um, to me, is the only place that we're going to find that sense of belonging again um, that is going to support our movement away from individualism into... Um, into stewardship or, or some of those concepts you were talking about. So I'm curious, I guess, um, with that move back to England and starting to connect with the land and um, the technologies that were your ancestral technologies, was there a resonance there? Was there like a remembrance in yourselves of those um, aspects or was it like learning something completely new? Um sort of a mix of the two, I guess, like, um, you know, it is quite awkward uh, trying to develop spiritual practice. I mean, you can kind of follow like Wiccan traditions or Druid traditions, whatever, you know, we've kind of made things up for the most part. Not a lot of that knowledge um, survived because before we went and colonized um, various parts of the world, uh, we were first colonized and um, you know, the few elders who were able to um, survive Christianity ended up um, when King James translated the Bible in the 1600s, just before, uh, you know, the transatlantic um, enslavement of African peoples. And just at the time that the, you know, first colony in the country now known as America was set up, um, Jamestown named after King James. Um, this paranoid king uh, started, you know, burning elder women because he was so afraid of, quote unquote, witches. Um, and so a lot of uh, what would have remained at that point or that might have still been practiced at that point was lost because it was an oral tradition like most indigenous cultures are. Um, and so anyone who sort of kind of claims to have that knowledge has made it up, which is totally fine, but you sort of have to um, find your own path. And there's um, there's a guy named Eddie Elsie, who's a friend of mine's partner, who's been um, working through uh, a sort of Celtic shamanism course, if you will, um, led by another um, gentleman named Jez Hughes, who wrote a great book called The Heart of Life, um, which talks a lot about this sort of um, sacred ecology aspect or spiritual ecology where, um, where it gives you sort of an outlook to look at the world that we live in today and learn how to um, apply this spiritual relationship to a sort of disenfranchised and, and fractulated uh, environment that we live in where there's not a lot of spirit. There's, we don't see the world as an enchanting place. And, um, and if you speak of spirituality for the most part, especially, um, you know, within this quote unquote Western society, it's not 
taken very seriously. So, and then on top of that, there's the awkwardness of trying to create rituals um, and trying to speak to, you know, your ancestors or your spirits or spirit guides or the elements themselves and not having the language and having to discover for yourself what that language is and forgiving yourself for feeling silly when you're, you know, talking to a tree or a fox or whatever else it is. Um, so as much as I feel a lot more grounded than I did say a year and a half, two years ago, when I, when I sort of restarted this journey, I, I was brought up pagan um, by my mom in a sort of animistic um, worldview. And we celebrated the solstices and the equinoxes. Um, but we also grew up within an indigenous community because um, where the city is that I grew up in is, is a sort of, Space that intersects about five different tribes. So there's the Cree, the Oji Cree, uh, the Anishinaabe, the Ojibwe, um, and 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 it's also the birthplace of the Métis Nation. So there's there's this incredible um, kaleidoscope of Indigenous cultures that I that I grew up around and that definitely impacted my mindset um, and my outlook on life um, and on on the world around me, but. Um, but I definitely spent most of my spiritual journey in my life thus far up until the point of sort of trying to, um, find a way to practice my spirituality without appropriating other people's cultures or practices or songs, um, that, yeah, that definitely feels, um, awkward, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but also grounding. I don't know quite how to explain it. It's, it's a sort of liminal space between, not knowing and not trying and trying and not knowing so so get that I love that I remember I grew up with a um a family friend and she was um from Cornwall where my ancestors are from and um she had this extraordinary herb garden and she was always like making salves and like doing extraordinary things with these herbs and I remember just being even as a kid so drawn to her and she would make these huge like pots of soup in this huge cast iron pot like and they're they're all the super sensor like sensorially amazing experiences your body remembers as a child and so it was only a lot later when I looked back and I started growing my own bee garden my own herb garden and 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 touching these herbs in a way um, that wasn't just about like cooking that like how quickly I could consume them (laughs) which is kind of our culture and I remember yeah. having this like extraordinary spiritual experience with rosemary one day, and then I started looking into that and origins where it came from, and and it just made total sense that yeah, it started out as this really awkward, um, but then the but then the remembrance of the moments in your life that you did feel that sense of groundedness or you know that sense of opening or that sense of expansion or that sense of remembrance. Um, I feel like it's that conversation, isn't it? It's like, for me, the conversation between the body and the sensing part of us mm-hmm. and then um, the learning part of us that's looking for inspiration outside of us, looking for that eldership, looking for that awareness. So, yeah, I love that. I'm curious, um, I know your work at the moment is centering around concepts of regenerative reciprocity, but I think I would just really love to hear um, you, you discussed it a little bit already, that movement from environmentalism to regenerative um, ag and then 
to deep ecology or sacred ecology and then now to the concept of regenerative reciprocity. I guess for those listening at home, it would be so beautiful to hear you um, talk about maybe through the lens of your journey the different concepts and why there was that movement or that evolution um, beyond each of those or through each of those um, those spheres, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I've, I've talked a lot about this with a couple of other friends who have, you know, Instagram pages um, and who have been blogging and, and writing and exploring this for a similar amount of time as I have. Um, I think at the beginning when I started writing, I, I, at that point I was, um, I was making upcycled clutches from, from, you know, little bits of fabric that I found in charity shops. And I'd been doing that for a couple of years, trying to kind of create this, you know, clutch brand that never really was much of a business brand because you could only make one, you know, one-off clutches. Um, and I, I, at that point, I really thought that we could sort of buy our way to a greener future. This was 2016. And um, I, I thought that if I didn't understand the structural issues, I understood there was issues within our system that were not circular um, and didn't consider the people or the planet um, or the non-human beings who, who dwell here with us. But I thought that maybe if we made it circular or, or if we just sort of made it greener that we would be okay. Um, and when Trump won in the States, um, I think it must've been either 2016 or 2017, I can't remember now. Um, I started to really look into the structural sort of hierarchies that allow for someone like that to come into power, um, especially um, as it relates to um, the, the issues of racism and, um, and poverty and um, all these sort of different aspects of supremacism that, that are different aspects of, of um, harm that are caused by the supremacism that, that perpetuates the sort of overall narrative of our society. Um, and through that um, exploration, I couldn't help but notice that you know, as you follow all these different routes back to their source, um, I, I didn't really know much about soil at that point, but but I understood that, you know, everything kind of comes from the earth and therefore returns to the earth. And if it doesn't biodegrade, it's 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 problematic. Um, and the systems that uphold it are, are, you know, hierarchical. So therefore there's always someone at the bottom or or some, you know, non-human being at the bottom being taken advantage of, or both. Um, and when I started to learn about soil, and, and I'm really not a science-minded person, but Kiss the Ground was, um, you know, really helpful for me to understand the, the enchanting facts that science has um, quote unquote proven that indigenous peoples um, all over the world, including our own ancestors and, and the Sami people, it's not just sort of a race thing, but it's also just a, a, an indigenous person is someone who lives in um, sacred relation with, with their environment. Um, and, and I think that understanding this sort of scientific view or a traditional um, indigenous ecological view of um, the world around me allowed me to learn the wisdoms that sort of nature holds within its breast, so to speak. Um, and I started to see all these metaphors for the, 
you know, for solutions to the type of world that, that we're living in. Um, and I think that has to do partially with, you know, learning about regeneration and what's possible um, when we, when we steward the earth in ways that are, that are re offer reciprocity, but also um, investing in that sort of animistic side of myself that was quite curious about learning the names of the plants and animals and, and birds around me so that I could have a, a sort of enchanting, um, enchanted relationship with them and see them as, um, as human or as human, as sentient beings. Um, and this is a very long answer to a short question, but, um, but I think that I, the regenerative reciprocity side or where, wherever I am now sort of exploring transformative justice um, in terms of reshaping the, the, the type of systems we live within um, and also sort of devolving power and responsibility to communities. It also sort of um, relates to this animistic worldview in that uh, you know, a, a plant that sits in front of me now um, may thrive in winter here in the UK, but it may not thrive in, in another, you know, part of England, for example. It may thrive in Sussex, where I live now, but it may not thrive in, in the north. Um, and that, therefore, you know, the, the solutions that we come up with need to be more, more related to place rather than... Um, Rather than trying to come up with solutions that will solve every problem worldwide, we need to start sort of rolling our view back and um, looking at our communities and our environments and finding ways to live in right relations with each other and, and with the living world around us. I don't know if I answered your question because I went on such a ramble that I forgot. No, what it's beautiful. I love that. I think that I've been exploring um, Andrea Olson's work again recently and Around, around place and the body and, um, and the earth. And I think place, place for me, like I, I support people to embody regeneration, like actually embody, and that includes activists. Like how do we actually live it inside ourselves? And what I find the most fascinating about that is um, that at the root of non-regeneration or the opposite of regeneration lies deep wounding around worth and separation and, you know, that I find that when we can restore a sense of um, belonging, I don't mean in terms of, like, uh, supremacist belonging, I mean belonging in place and belonging in community and, like, belonging in that I get to walk around and I see my neighbours' kids and I help them go to school and, you know, that there's this real... Um, felt sense and something I really want to cultivate for my kids is that they belong in place. They know where the foxhole is. They know where the creek is. They know where it's safe to cross. They know they've mapped it, right? They know they know the place. And what that cultivates within the self is a sense of a sense of worth that is therefore not needing to be met by overconsumption or, or working or like all of the ways that we that we do um, that we avoid the intimacy of relationship that can bring up uh, our felt sense of inadequacy or lack of worth. So it's so interesting to me that this work of like restoring or repairing or regenerating our relationship with self, and it sounds like for you that's been partly through, um, you know, reacquainting yourself with the animist um, perspectives. But I guess I'm curious as to, how you think we can wrestle or reconcile 
with the narrative in the environmental movement that humans are bad when in a regenerative kind of culture sense, I think that we need to find our place rather than label ourselves as bad or carry shame or kind of adopt that like anti-human stance. Like where have you arrived with with that? Well, I think, you know, everything that we do in this world has an impact um, negatively, so to speak, on on another being in one way, shape or form. Um, but also under the principles of reciprocity, um, there are some sort of natural exchanges that happen, like the exchange between, you know, photosynthesis, which creates, which draws down carbon into the soil and helps feed the microbes and then is released as oxygen, which we breathe. And then we, we exhale CO2, which then continues that cycle. So there's plenty of um, cause and effects that are sort of circular and natural that we don't really need to think about. But at the same time, when we do think about them, um, we realize how sort of interconnected we are. I mean, we share 25% of our DNA with um, our, you know, each of our four grandparents. And we also share 25% of our DNA as humanity with trees. So we, and, you know, with rice and, and there's all these different sort of um, non-human beings who share sort of the genetic makeup of, of our species, um, you know, indicating under a scientific point of view that, you know, we are one as, you know, all the, all the people have been saying throughout history. Um, I think there's also an aspect of like you were saying, like your children knowing where the foxhole is or me sitting by the tree and see, or seeing the foxes sitting in the same spot that I like to sit in the sun or whatever, that we are sharing this space, um, this planet with many other beings who are intrinsic to our survival, just as we're intrinsic to theirs in some ways. Um, and I think in many ways, it's this sort of disenchanted worldview that allows for this utilitarian mindset that, um, that separates us from that reality, which is, you know, one of them, as much as it's a spiritual thing and, and, and a grounding thing to realize how interconnected we are, it's also a factual thing. Um, and this utilitarian mindset that sort of separates us from that fact is what is killing us. Um, it's what's creating all these injustices in the world. It's what's um, causing this planet to heat and, seeing the living world as a living being and seeing how it reacts to our um, disrespect, to our uh, disenchantment, to uh, the lack of reciprocity that our society practices. Um, It makes sense that what is happening is happening. And I still have a lot of faith that we can, you know, there is, there is something kind of happening um, inside of us that is drawing a lot of people to question the world that we live in, whether they're coming through the door um, you know, driven, driven by, by paying attention to the injustices that are happening around the world, or if they're coming in through the environmental movement or even through the spiritual realm, there's a certain um, group of people who, are, who continue on that path to go past where, um, where the obvious uh, conversations end. Um, and it's just past that space that there is sort of this liminal space where there's a lot of people trying to figure out how to connect these three things, um, transformative justice, spiritual ecology, and, um, and, uh, and 
yeah, I guess those are three things. Um, but, but, you know, trying to, um, find ways to, to interweave them, to create a new story for humanity. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think there's kind of a few things going on that we really have a chance to, um, narrate a new, a new beginning, create different patterns than we've created before, um, and learn how to take care of each other in the living world. Mm, I love that. I love, um, I love that when we can be really firmly grounded in reality and injustice and, as you said, the, the place where we are and also um, uh, build a bridge to that new narrative and vision. I think the um, embodying or, like, dancing in those two spaces and allowing ourselves to be in both, I found really transformative. It's not about, like, I guess, being in hope and bypassing reality, but neither is it about um, being in hopelessness and despair when we can, uh, like, allow that to be alchemized, transmuted, like, held together, I guess, uh, with other beings, other people who are feeling the same, um, so that on the other side we can find that possibility. I think it's you know, really here that I see, I see it in your time. Working and writing a lot, I think it's this beautiful mix of um, visioning and also um, education and awareness, and also um, yeah, the tying together, the building the bridges between those elements and spaces, like you said. So, I guess I'm curious as, as we kind of come to the end. Personally, what are you working with at the moment in order to cultivate? Um, a relationship with your work in the world that is regenerative? Um, what are you dancing with personally in terms of embodying regeneration? Yeah, I'm, well, there's a few things and I'm not 100% sure that I'm on 100% the right path either. Um, I know we've had other conversations as well. Like I've become quite interested in human design. My friend Vanessa Henry, um, who runs a, a human design course, um, shared with me some insights on my design a few years ago. And uh, when I got the virus um, last year and was feeling very much between this um, two spaces of being part of reality and somewhere in the dream world um, that my fever took me to, I, I kept listening to her voice memos over and over again, um, trying to understand myself a bit better and, and who I wanted to be coming out of this space. Because every time I went online, to try and re-engage with community in the moments that I felt a bit better. It just seemed so binary. Um, there's a real separatist narrative that's come forth, um, which is only natural when, um, you know, there's so many different groups of people uh, not shouting for attention, but trying to have their voices heard. Um, and so I, I do a lot of work um, in various spaces um, and it feels fr quite fragmented. A lot of the time I work for the Green Party of England and Wales. Um, that's my day job. Um, I've also recently started consulting for the Wolf Institute, which is at Cambridge University, which works with the three Abrahamic faiths um, to help prevent polarization and radicalization of, um, of any of those three um, uh, faith groups, which make up the majority of our our, um, our planet's population, of the human population anyways. 
Um, I also work with Greens of Color, which is a, a liberation group within the Green Party um, that amplifies the um, lived experiences of people of color or black um, Asian minority ethnic groups, as, as we say here. Um, and then I spend a lot of time reading. Um, I try to sort of uh, I'm part of an anti-racism book club because I have a lot to learn um, in that aspect. And it's not just the works of Black peoples that I read. It's also the works of Indigenous peoples and not just in America or Canada, but also in Australia and New Zealand um, and India and other places in the world where um, the sort of roots of racial capitalism have reached and have caused, you know, massive genocide and harm um, and through these kind of fractioned um, things in my my life outside the computer world, I, I also garden and forage um, and I swim every day in the cold water here on the English Channel. I live on the southern coast of England. Um, and, and I try to practice <laughs> this Celtic spirituality in my awkward way. It's getting a lot more sort of fluid, um, you know, a couple of years in, but and grow my own herbs and things like that. So all of those, that sort of kaleidoscope of things um, uh, helps me have uh, a wider worldview than that which my life sort of provides. Um, you know, I'm a cisgender white girl. I, I, um, I, I don't necessarily come from privilege monetarily, but, you know, I grew up in a loving family and I've, I don't think I've ever had um, extreme hardships of any kind other than living in poverty. But in Canada, at the time that I grew up and was living in poverty, it wasn't, um, you know, as bad as it is now. Um, so all that to say that I'm sort of focusing on um, too many things, I think, right now. But what all these threads keep sort of uh, stringing back to is this, the, the, the cause of all the harms in the entire world <laughs> tend to be this disenchanted worldview, which I keep bringing up because I do think it's really important that we understand where the root of the rot begins. Um, and I don't think, you know, we can amplify Indigenous voices. We can, um, you know, try to change the laws and policies within the system that currently exists to try to decrease the levels of oppression that um, our society creates. We can practice all the spirituality in the world um, and, uh, you know, have all sorts of festivals and things like that. But none of those things are going to change the, the, um, the overarching theme of our, our narrative that we live within unless we start to follow those threads into di different aspects of our lives and begin to heal them and, um, and find ways of re-enchanting ourselves and the people around us with the living world with each other um, and with our communities. Um, so I think I'm trying really hard to um, figure out how to live in line with my human design as a way of um, not getting too, you know, um, unfocused. Um, I'm an emotional manifesting generator, so it's really easy for me to kind of go off, go off on various um, paths very intensely uh, and just sort of have all these sort of black holes for my energy. Um, so what I've been trying to do in the past few months is really pull back and focus on those, those three crosswords, crossroads of environmentalism, justice, and spirituality, um, and the intersects that they share. Um, and hoping that within those intersects, I might 
find, um, I really, I'm grateful for the way that you describe my work because that's what I hope to do is sort of, uh, create an environment for education, but also enchantment and reflection. Um, because my point of view is not going to necessarily be the right point of view and I don't expect it to be. Um, but I think all of our jobs with each other are to sort of sow seeds within one another. Um, if the, the person is healthy, then those seeds will be sown and they may be watered by someone else and, you know, lit, illuminated by another person and, um, and, and, and grow at various sort of paces of um, conception. But, um, but I think, it, you know, regardless of who we are in the world, our job is to plant seeds in one another that create a different, that, that, that create a different world and celebrate the diversity of, um, of each one of us within the, or sorry, the uniqueness of each one of, the, of us within the diversity of the whole, um, just like a garden that, you know, you've got companion plants um, planted with each other in the same bed and they are completely different plants, but they support one another and, um, and help each other, you know, be nourished and grow. Um, and so I have this great hope that we can find a narrative that helps those seeds be planted, um, and germinate and, um, and bloom, uh, into a sort of, hopefully what the stars have written to be, a new um, age of, of, you know, a revolution and, and change. I just got chills in my body think, hearing you paint that, that future for yeah. us um, and, my, and my greatest hope. I love the idea of that we, that we sow seeds. It's, it's how I feel. I'm also though, an emotional manifesting generator, so it's more about sprinkling seeds everywhere than like, them tending to the plant but that's cool I'm, I'm totally fine with that and I love the idea of in that in that garden that's growing from those seeds that we have the capacity or we we allow ourselves to be okay in the wildness of it and the chaos of it you know I think that there's so much distraction that comes from the illusion of control and the illusion of um that chaos is or that wildness is something to be feared. And I, I love the idea of, um, you know, in the body opening up this pathway to, to look at that as just extraordinary and be enchanted by the wildness rather than terrified by it. I think that that would be a world that I would really enjoy inhabiting. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time, Holly. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. <laughs>